amazing. Um, hey, everyone. We're here today on Top Fives and Deep Dives. Today, we are going to be diving into the film Black Snake Moan. Came out March 2nd, 2007. Rated R. Hard R. Hour and 56 minutes long. Got a 66% from the critics on Rotten Tomatoes. 69% from the audience. Pretty good, but massively underrated film. I don't I don't think there's that many people that remember this film today. And I know Mike agrees with me. And... To be honest, even I was underrating it. We loved this movie when we were in college, and I think I still, in my memory, was underrating it. And having rewatched it, can confirm it's massively underrated. Absolutely, it's. Bef- I mean, before we did this rewatch, we both always had fond memories of it, but clearly we hadn't rewatched it in like ten years because I think we thought, yeah, yeah, it was a fun movie back then. But it's just one of those movies comes out, you sort of never watched again. No, no, it holds up. Everyone needs to watch it. We're going to be preaching this for the entirety of the episode. And yeah, so a little bit of background. The cast. We've got just Christina Ricci, Mike's favorite actress ever. Yes. <laughs> In case uh, you haven't heard the other episodes, <laughs> there was an issue where I had an unacceptable attraction to Christina Ricci. As a young man, which I'm not going to lie. It's still there today, but not nearly at that level. Casper messed him up early. It, def- it definitely <laughs> did. And let me tell you, this movie didn't help. This movie did not help when I was oh. a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> then we have the one, the only, one of our all-time favorites, Samuel L. Jackson. Nothing else can needs we, to be said. What, can you tell me what some of your favorite Samuel L. Jackson movies are? That we can say. For me, I mean, Pulp Fiction, I know almost everyone's going to say that, but yeah. Pulp Fiction is like my favorite movie of all time. Snakes on a Plane. Massive Snakes on a Plane fan. Um, trying to think. I'm, gonna, I'll give, I'm trying to give you. I want to Where give you are you on Hateful Eight? I liked Hateful Eight a lot, and I don't know why everybody else didn't, but I, I think, thought it was super legit. I think Hateful Eight is severely underrated. Oh, yes. Can't yeah. wait to discuss in more detail. Same. It's but and Samuel was amazing in it. Yeah. I'd say I'm trying to think you know you know what's sort of an underrated role by him? I mean it's his classic Samuel, but I just love him in like Shaft. Oh dude, I've got Shaft on my list. The negotiator. Ooh. SWAT. SWAT, totally dude, underrated. SWAT. An epic like watching like at on the afternoon on TNT movie. Colin Farrell, LL Cool J. And um uh, uh, who's in it? Uh, Michelle Rodriguez, right? Yes. And wow. I'd say the only one that we haven't mentioned that I have to throw out here is Coach Carter, one of my favorite sports movies of all time. Severely underrated and not talked about enough in the sort of lexicon of great sports movies, which is dominated by Kevin Costner. But Coach <laughs> Carter, incredible. We've already talked about three movies that are severely underrated, including Black Sigma. <laughs> well, Samuel Jackson cannot be properly rated. No, he cannot. The catalog is too goddamn deep. The man oh, is boy. an absolute legend. And all right, I, all right. wait, I got to throw one more. One more. Yes. I can't not. Deep Die Hard with a Vengeance. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, 
Also, shout out to Die Hard 4 with Justin Long. <laughs> I love Justin Long so much. <laughs> you really do. You really do. You love him. I really do. We love you, Justin. Oh. Speaking oh, of uh, Justin's, there's oh, wow. one in this movie. Justin God. Timberlake. <laughs> Dog, the, the Segway game is just out of control. <laughs> we oh. love Justin Timberlake, too. We do. I mean, Alpha Dog, come on. Incredible. Incredible. Also, you know, a couple little movies inside Lewin Davis and the social network. Incredible. Incredible. But don't don't sleep on Bad Teacher, though. Oh, my God. And Trolls, dude. I think he's getting a ton of money for Trolls. I mean, he's making the song for the movie. He's in the movie. He's got to be crushing it in terms of money from those. And, of course, some of the greatest SNL performances of all time. Of course, with The Lonely Island. Unbelievable. Um. So we've got we've got quite a top three in this, quite a top three, and there's some some good supporting cast as well. We've got Michael Raymond James, Brit from Terriers. If you've listened to our Terriers episode, we love Michael Raymond James. We think we like True Blood. We know you do. I've never seen it. We love Future Terriers. Deep dive. But what a dick what a goddamn dick in this movie yeah what a piece of shit in this movie we've got david banner we've got john cothran well how dare you you just just gloss right over <laughs> david banner the 601 legend dude oh my God. are you kidding play cadillac oh. on 22s my uzi yao ming <laughs> like a pimp get like me dude mississippi the album how dare you wow the man Produced- is passionate Produced Little Wayne Pussy Monster and Rubber Band Man by T.I. I'm just, I, I'm speechless right now. This is this. Don't, don't sleep on MTA 2 either. My favorite <laughs> album of his. All right. Anyway. Sorry. Wow. Well, and he's good in the movie, dude. He's good. He in this is. Movie. He really he is. Exactly what he needs to do. Someone is a super fan, though, clearly on the All other right, end. Sorry. Continue. Um, I mean, we've got a few other people in this. Is there anyone else worth shouting out? Like, to be honest, there's like the character list is short in this movie. It's, it's because it's basically you know two people kind of going back and forth with like a few supporting roles. But I think you nailed it. All right. Well, then, I mean, let's let's get to the fact that speaking of terriers, wow, the segue game is honestly ridiculous. It's, it's um, absolutely insane these days. <laughs> what happened to you? Sandy the writer, <laughs> the writer director of this is Craig Brewer, who directed the pilot of Terriers, um, also directed and wrote Hustle and Flow. Also directed ten episodes of Empire, wrote three of them. He directed Dolomite Is My Name, the recent Eddie Murphy film. Back on the scene. Back on the scene. And speaking of Eddie Murphy, Craig Brewer is directing the upcoming Coming to America sequel, also called Coming to America, but with a two instead of T.O. Absolutely fucking brilliant. I love I love when, when people do that. I think maybe the best one is Two Lander. Uh, but but there, I mean, not in terms of quality of the movie. I mean, in terms of throwing the number of the sequel into the name oh dear lord oh my god i didn't even realize they had done that for that absolutely ridiculous um 
Anywho, moving on from that fact that I wish I never knew. I'm sorry. <laughs> Big shout out to Zoolander, though, obviously. Obviously, obviously. And I think we're at that point, Mike, where do you want to take us away on a little summary of the film? Yeah, so just uh, to be clear, uh, we're assuming that you've seen the movie, so we're not going to give you an entire summary, but I'll give you a quick rundown to kind of get everybody grounded for this this discussion. Uh, so basically, the movie centers around Ray, played by Christina Ricci, and uh, Lazarus, played by Samuel Jackson. So in the beginning, uh, we, we see Ray with her boyfriend, uh, Ronnie, played by Justin Timberlake. And Ronnie goes off like into the army, kind of leaving her. Uh, we find out that she has sort of some unknown, um, I guess you'd say, sort of mental issue, uh, which we don't really know about. So I'm not spoiling it right now. Uh, Samuel gets left by his wife. Uh, so both of these, both of our main characters are introduced separately. They don't know each other, but we know that they're both kind of in a bad place, let's say. Uh, so yeah, so Ronnie goes to the army. Uh, Basically, as soon as he goes to the army, uh, Ray is kind of at a party, um, getting super fucked up on pills, as one does. Uh, she is subsequently raped. And then our guy, Michael Raymond James, incredibly unsward, beats the shit out of her and basically just leaves her to die on the side of the road near where Samuel Jackson lives. Key the next morning, he wakes up, sees her. Uh, brings her into his house because um, she's like beaten up and runs to the town to get like some medicine for her starts taking care of her for a while which is good he's looking good at this point and then as you probably already know which is really the crux of the entire movie upon realizing that she is i don't know the word we want to use here town an nymphomaniac we'll go with nymphomaniac but i I think we'll have to discuss that that's not a real term yeah so anyway she's hypersexual or whatever we want to say he having just have his wife left him for his brother gets sort of triggered and decides not only is he gonna cure her in terms of like fixing her up from her injuries he is going to chain her to the radiator in his house and sort of preach the nymphomania out of her uh this goes on for a while uh, she kind of comes to accept what he's doing sort of which we'll talk a lot more about and obviously this is deeply complicated too much for the summary um, eventually he you know lets her go um and they sort of become friends he with the help of uh, kind of his local preacher helps uh, helps her and Ronnie, who's back from the army, uh, work on their relationship. And at the end of the movie, it it looks like everything's going to be okay for everybody, really. That was fantastic. So it's a difficult movie to summarize because there's a lot going on. It but, is. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. And- we already told you, but... My big thing, thinking back on this movie, to be honest, I haven't seen it in a while. And I think on some level, it was because I was afraid to see it. Like, even just describing the plot in 2007, never mind in 2020, describing the plot, that old man 
forcibly kidnaps and chains young woman in his house. We're not off to a good start. We're not off to a good start. Let's be honest. <laughs> However, I think I, I think I appreciate it more than I ever did looking back on it now. And maybe I'll, I'll kick off the discussion by saying I – this movie would obviously never get made today. That's clear for everything no, that I just said. And it's hard to ever believe that it got made in, uh, I guess, filmed in 2006, came out in 2007. But before we even talk about the content, let me just say, I don't know what you think, but for me, I'm so glad that this movie and movies like it exist. I know you and I talk about the film industry a lot, but this type of movie, you know, passion project written, directed by someone who basically... Had he not made Hustle and Flow, which obviously was highly acclaimed, no one would have ever given him the green light and said, here's $15 million, make whatever nonsense you want to make, basically. Because th- you can't bring this to someone without that happening, right? And and I just love the era when you could get a little bit of money to make a passion project and create somewhat controversial 0% chance of being popular you know, films, basically. Totally. And I feel like there was such a, there was such a, like, it was almost like a flash in time where you could really do that. Yes. It felt like you could do it a little bit pre 2000s, but then I felt like there was this nice, like, early 2000s through, like, we'll say 2015, where I felt like you could do it. And then I feel like it's back out. You can't do it anymore. For sure, for sure, and that's when a lot of the movies that you you know you and I talk about are from like P.T. Anderson or guys like that that are like, okay, I'm glad this was able to be made. If it doesn't have a chance of being Avengers, basically nothing is made now, mm-hmm. and, and this is, you know, again, you, no matter what we say here, you may or may not love this movie, but as is like a piece of art. I really appreciate that this and movies like it were able to get made. Same. And especially the fact that someone like Craig Brewer, who, you know, he's not a household name, like, you know, PT and, you know, PTA or Tarantino or the Coen brothers, you know, any of these more art house guys that are so popular as a name that they're still allowed to make the films they want. But I'd say we're even more so talking about the indies or these passion projects that are directed by people that don't have that type of a claim. And maybe they had one successful film and this was the reason why they're then able to make a passion project. And this is one of those for sure. And it's, it's special. Um, and, and Mike, I'm with you. Like, I feel like part of not rewatching it was because it was so enjoyable back then and thinking to myself that it wouldn't age well and why ruin the memory and the fondness that we always had for it through college. And I'm so glad we did rewatch it because it's, again, it's, yeah, it's even better today, I think. More, even more relevant today with everything going on in the world. 
And I mean, we're, we're going to talk about Samuel's performance, obviously, but I mean, and, and Christina Ricci, both of them give some of their best performances. And for Samuel, that says a lot because he has so many performances, so many roles that he's done. And this is one of the more impressive ones, I think. Yeah. And I think what's really telling is that both him and Christine Ricci went to such lengths to deliver their performance in this role. They, they believed in the project. They weren't going to fuck around with it. And they all went balls in. I mean, for Samuel, it's, it's clear that he, I mean, fuck, he plays guitar in the movie. He's playing guitar. He learned how to play guitar for hours a day while filming other movies, just so that he could give this an honest performance. And he's goddamn good. It totally sells it. You totally believe it. And like, you kind of want to listen to it. Like he's actually good at blues. He, he literally played guitar for like six to seven hours a day for six months straight. And just to, got to, to learn. learn. And basically even like developed kind of his own style that that would fit this movie and blew everybody's expectations away. And Christina Ricci, she, I mean, she was never like a, like an overweight type person. She's always like sort of a healthy way, let's say. But she basically just ate shit food so that she would, okay, be skinny, but like look like literally unhealthy in the film, which she does. This She carries around a literal 40 pound chain. And basically during the entire time, like even when they weren't filming, she's just sitting around like wearing no clothes. Like she does like in the movie, like she was just full on committed. And if anything, Samuel L. Jackson in like a sort of, a mirroring of his actual character in the movie, like had to sort of stop her from going too far in a sense. I mean, they both really gave their all and it shows. Yeah. And because apparently sometimes on set and stuff or like after set, he'd be like, put some clothes on. And she'd be like, no, no, I'm doing it for the role. Yeah. Yeah. And like have to say like, she can't like, like basically uh, you can only go so hard so often because like if you hurt yourself you're gonna ruin this film like she was just going for it mm-hmm. and, and that, she that's a, go ahead go ahead she wanted this role because yes. she she wasn't the filmmaker's first choice they they apparently didn't even want her to audition and she's pretty much said fuck this she bleached her hair she auditioned they still weren't convinced and apparently they weren't convinced that she was going to be like sexual enough. So she said in an interview that pretty much her agents and publicists just kept sending like sexy images of her until they relented and were like, all right, we'll hire her. Yeah. And I guess, I guess Craig was basically convinced by the audition, but nobody else was Mm -hmm. because for him, he, he said like what her role ended up being is like, 99% 99% of the audition. Like she just developed the character and went all in. And he was like, well, this is it. Like, this is what I'm thinking of. Amazing. Amazing. And, and, and again, whatever you think about this movie at the end of this podcast, because I know it is difficult. I do feel like script in hand, we're making this movie. They did almost a perfect job getting the most out of this script that you possibly can. Yes, absolutely. 
and a big part of that was definitely the the actors going all in and yeah and and one thing i wanted to say mike that i meant to say earlier when you were giving the summary obviously everyone we're assuming has probably seen the film but when you said at the beginning about how she's at the party she gets raped and everything it's also made very clear to us over the you know the first 10 minutes of the film that she while while to samuel sort of this sex you know nymphomaniac type stuff is revealed to him a little bit later it's revealed to us on you know watching in the first 10 minutes like she's getting fucked by by uh tyrone and yeah there you go david banner (laughs) and it's it's very obvious that she unfortunately is just pouring herself around town while JT is off in the army. And it's also clear though, that it's, she doesn't really want to be. And it's this like issue that we're still learning more about. Right. Right. Um, where do we go from here? I think, uh, all right, well maybe we should deal with the elephant in the room, the chaining to the radiator. Yes. And, And just talk about it. So, okay. Just, I, I think maybe let's just throw up a disclaimer. Obviously, in any era, it was never going to be okay that he chains this girl against her will and keeps her in his house. No. While the movie makes you somewhat sympathetic to his character, no one is ever going to defend that this was the right thing to do. Uh, that it's an acceptable thing to do. And and I do feel like there was a fair number and still is a fair number of takes on this movie that are essentially girl is chained. That's a big no from me. And while I understand that, I do think as we go on, you'll see that that's that you shouldn't dismiss this film because it's dealing with something pretty crazy, but it's obviously not okay. hundred percent. It's... And I, sorry, I was just gonna say, and Craig Brewer has openly said that this movie is, doesn't exactly take place in reality. In no world does anyone get chained, and this like happens. So while that doesn't excuse it from the morals of reality, you do have to consider that there's a sort of fable aspect to this film where you shouldn't really think. Wait what the fuck is happening right here and dismiss it based on that. And on the same level, while Samuel's character Lazarus is taking advantage of this Ray, as, as Justin kind of alluded to basically, not only does she like hate herself, she has so little regard for her own well-being that very quickly after being chained to this radiator, she just kind of comes to accept it. And that sort of helps explain um, how the movie is able to proceed in the way that it does, because the whole thing is not too totally, you know, I, I hate to use this word, but like typical or normal people dealing with this situation. It's a variety of special circumstances. The movie deals with extremes. It's yes. they're making 
they're taking the extremes of a situation to tell us a story. And in a sense, it shouldn't even be taken as literal what's happening. Right. Because it's, again, really just showing us these two people that are both broken in different ways coming together and healing each other. Yes. And again, I do understand why people reacted the way that they did. Um, And maybe in a second, we could talk about some of the marketing that probably justifiably prompted some of these reactions. But Mm -hmm. this movie does a lot. It tries to do a lot. I mean, like I said, it's really like it's a it's a fable. It's a movie that's very much uh, sort of grounded in Southern culture. It's this redemption tale, like Justin said. It's this sexual abuse angle that we get with Ray, you know, and and the subsequent sort of mental health issues. It's basically one big ode to blues music in the same way that Hustle and Flow is kind of Craig's hip hop movie. This is really his blues movie. It's it's a comedy at times. And obviously, again, with the chain part, what you can't get away from is it's very rightfully described or criticized, depending on your point of view, as an exploitation film. It just is. Yeah. And I think if if we do dive into the marketing, marketing a little bit, I mean, they aimed this marketing at high school at high school and college boys. Yeah. Yes. Which is funny enough, and admittedly, probably what to an extent caught Mike and Mai's eye back in the day when it came out, as we were that guilty. age. Guilty. Very much guilty. With that said, we both are big film fans in general, and I think upon seeing it back then appreciated it for the good movie that it was. Although again, I, I think appreciated even more after what, after rewatching it and it's uh, but yeah, I mean the marketing materials that they used for this were very much just trying to show Christina Ricci in as few clothes as possible on posters and billboards and with the chain around her, it was very much. I mean, she was furious about it just for starters. She to this day, I mean, I believe to this day is still upset about the marketing for the film. There was a point where apparently, and I don't know if this is still true, but apparently she does not even like to sign memorabilia from the film because of the sour taste from the marketing. And given also what we told you just a few minutes ago, how invested in this film she was and apparently so proud of it as well to then with that also be really disappointed because of how they marketed the film. Yeah, 100%. And, and again, it's, I, I do feel, I, I guess I want to just mention here to play devil's advocate that when you're sort of doing an open exploitation film, I'm not necessarily shocked that the, the marketing took the sort of place that it did, but 
it did such a disservice first to Christina Ricci's performance, um, second to her character who, yes, has, I guess what we'll call like a sexual issue, if you want to say that, but is completely brought on by the fact that she has sexually abused repeatedly as a child and has led to this sort of PTSD, I don't know, maybe borderline personality disorder if you want to dig deep into it. But anyway, some sort of mental health issue that's got mm-hmm. her here. So totally disrespectful to that. And then three genuinely steered people away from a film that has so much more to offer. Yeah. But but I'm with you, Mike, that not saying that it was a good thing, but but there's a part of you that can't be that surprised that they went this route for an exploitation film. Yeah. And it's we're not saying if it's the right or wrong thing to do it's probably wasn't fully it definitely wasn't fully representative of the film it's sort of in line with other marketing techniques though from other exploitation films over the years so it it didn't fully surprise i also can understand why christina ricci was a bit upset by it because I think she had a different impression of how it would maybe be first like teased to the public just because it, it, I mean, it is one of her really great roles. She does such a good job in it and to feel like you're relegated to just being like a sex icon for it or just like, you know, this just being used in, a totally sexual way opposed to a, a talent way. It, I can understand that not feeling good at all. Totally, totally. Um, okay, so I think we've got the biggest, most troubling things out of the way, which are justifiably able to be criticized and said maybe what the movie is not, but maybe we can, should then say what it is, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I think so. Do you want to start with the title? Yeah. Do you want to go? Do you want to go into it first? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, well, basically, as I said, this movie is really about the blues. Um, the title is directly taken from a 1927 song by Blind Lemon Jefferson, who's like a Texas blues legend if you want to call it that um and it's interesting because this the song called black snake moan is not directly used in the movie and samuel jackson sings a different version that may or may not change kind of what the song means and how you interpret the film but basically the original song is has two meanings to it so singing about this black snake, which is a, a theme that, that Samuel Jackson does carry over as a, uh, I guess you'd say like your demons kind of behind you creeping up sort of imagery. Um, that, that part is carried over. And the second part is when in the original uh, BLJ version, it's also pretty clear that the black snake is his dick 
let's be, let's be real. That's, <laughs> it's pretty clear that he's also talking about his dick. And that part is maybe uncomfortably carried over into the film. And again, it's kind of interesting like that this entire idea of a film could essentially be pulled from a 1920s blues song. But again, that's part of the charm of filmmaking in this time that I appreciate. Um, and, and Samuel Jackson's version, again, is a little bit different. And it's more just focused on kind of his and, and obviously uh, Christina Ricci's demons coming back to kind of bite them um, over the course of the film. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a great title for the film. Let's be real. For sure. A, for sure. It, it represents a few, it represents a few different things. It very literally, of course, references a dick and moaning. It's, it's pretty uh, much right there. It's right on the nose in that sense. But yeah, no, it's a great title. And um, yeah, it's a great title. It's I really like it. It um, I'm like, I had something that I wanted to say. Totally forgot about it. Damn it. You got, any, you got anything, Mike? Yeah, anything yeah here. I'll get what you think. So, uh, so as I said, Samuel Jackson sings a different version um, in the film, which appears on the soundtrack, which we'll talk about. Uh, but basically, before he starts singing, uh, he's kind of speaking about, you know, the experience that he's had with his wife in the film, obviously, to Christina Ricci. And then he, he says this is like the introduction to the song where he says, that voice in my head, every time I think it's gone, it comes hollering back. It calls me when I'm ailing, can't find my way home, lost in the pines. I calls it the black snake moment. And even even that, like lost in the pines, like whether from like your history of blues music or like the lead belly version or like the Nirvana version, the like where did you sleep last night or like in the pines is such like a iconic blues song um, that it's, it's clear that this is a an homage to a certain time, but is is a song about um, well, okay. So besides what we said, I'm, I'm interrupting myself only to say that like the very, very beginning of the movie is a clip of Sun House, another like Mississippi Delta blues legend, basically saying blues music is about sort of heartbreak and, and the emotions that that's come from that. And this is exactly what the song is about, right? It's dealing with dealing with some shit. Let's put it that way. And he is shown again later in the film. Yeah, where he says blues comes from the heart, not the other side, this side, the heart. And he's right. He's totally right. And yeah, I don't, I'm going to segue because I don't have much more to say on the title unless you do. Uh, No, go ahead, go ahead. And I was just going to say, because I've been thinking about this for a bit that I wanted to shout this out earlier. I love the opening, like the opening 10 minutes of this film. I think it's just so cleverly done introducing your main players. We introduce Ray, we introduce Ronnie, we introduce Laz. And I just love how it all sort of, we'll call it the intro ends with Ray just walking home down the street, walking in the middle of the road with a tractor behind her, honking at her, and she doesn't give a fuck, and she throws up the bird, 
back at the back at the tractor, still standing in the middle of the street while Black Snake Moan comes onto the screen. And it's just yeah, and the title, the title, uh, like the font is almost Tarantino too. And it's got that like yellow and white. Um, it's like very, it's very cool. Yes. But I will say for me, maybe it's not fair, but I mark the beginning as ending like 20 seconds later than that when she's walking into town and like the mechanic guy yells at her. <laughs> and it's, like, it's already noon, Ray. Do you think these shorts would still, should still be on? She's like, well, if they weren't, you could kiss my rebel coochie, you yeah. F-word. <laughs> so fucking good. And it just establishes like everything about her character. Oh, Even, so like, good. One beautiful line. God damn it. There's so many good lines in this movie. It's unbelievable. Maybe we should talk about some some quotes. Do we wanna do we wanna talk about some non-Samuel quotes or do we wanna give our top five Samuel quotes? let's you know what let's do our top five quotes right now we'll throw it in now because we have another top five later let's so let's it. give you a midway top five so these are our top five samuel lines in the movie so and wait wait before you go uh-huh. let's just very quickly recap samuel plays a sort of ex bluesman in this movie who basically kind of left his life of blues music for this woman has settled down. He's now just like a humble farmer. And then his woman left him and kind of over the course of the movie, he gets back to and sort of, I don't know, uh, maybe falls in love with blues again or falls in love with sort of that part of himself and kind of embraces that part of his personality, um, which which obviously Christina Ricci helps bring us out, bring out in him. So He's a, a bluesman that knows his way around the bar, but is also in this outlandish situation that leads to just incredible quotes. Incredible. Go. And Go. and I'm going to just throw out a disclaimer on my end. And Mike, don't worry if you did do this, but some of my favorite quotes were lines in the songs he performs. I didn't include those. I just, Ooh. I kept it to the spoken quotes and some of my favorite stuff will be in our later top five. I kept it for that. This I sort of just kept straight up to Samuel lines that are just ridiculous. And I'm very excited to see what we both came up with. But my number five is very simple. But it's just very classic Samuel. It is when Ray first runs outside with the chain and they're going back and forth. And Samuel, in the most Samuel way ever, the most Tarantino Samuel way ever, just looks at her and just gets serious and goes, get your ass back in my house. It's, all right, that's on my list too. So (laughs) (laughs) it's incredible. How could it not be? It's too good. It's it's amazing. And that's one of my, yeah, okay. I can't say anything else. I'll, I'll hold it. Okay. So my number five is... Early on in the movie, and I'm actually going to give you a two-parter. I'm cheating a little bit, but I'm going to give you a two-part for number five. Because my number five is actually, uh, well, the scene is he's in the bar. His wife has literally just left him. He hasn't found Christina Ricci yet. So very beginning of the movie. And uh, there's a a patron of the bar, a fine lady, who is sort of, you know, reminiscing a bit about when Sam used to kind of get, you know, play music in this bar. And now it's just like a dump. 
and she says a totally outrageous line, which is basically that her and her friends, when they were younger, used to talk about how hard Samuel's fingers are. And he just goes, they're hard from picking peas, not strings. <laughs> it just, like, it just it's, again, it just establishes this, like, first of all, the way he delivers is epic, but like it establishes this relationship that he's like totally divorced from his past as a bluesman and is now just like this farmer. But the subsequent right after the exchange, <laughs> the exchange that they have right after is now she wants to, to, she's, you know, she understands that Samuel's hurting and maybe it's, you know, maybe he needs some womanly attention and he just goes, Mayella, it ain't never happened. And it damn sure ain't going to happen tonight to which she just says, Oh, Les, I know you're hurting, but you should know more than me. Ain't no better cure for the blues than some good pussy. (laughs) (laughs) The whole fucking exchange is incredible. She's just as good as he is. And I know I cheated because it's too good, but it's just so fucking good. It's when that line happened, that was like the first time in the movie where I just lost it. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. Fantastic. Fantastic. Number five. We're allowing the cheat. We're allowing the cheat. Um, it's our podcast so i can break the rules exactly my number four is again this is similar to number five in that it's about how samuel says it more so than the line yourself i guess you could say that a bit for every single samuel line but this line the most of probably the five quotes i picked is about that and it's when rl the reverend had just first come over the house. They get in a big argument because Samuel explains what's going on inside. And Samuel is trying to convince him to please go talk to, please go talk to Ray. And he tells him, he says, he just looks at him. And and another, I don't think it's a line you're going to think I'm about to say, Mike, because that comes later for me. But he just looks at him after they started getting this argument. He's like, I'm cooking steaks for dinner. I expect you to stay. Oh, wow. And, There's so many other lines in that scene. I thought I you were going to say. I know. I know. But <laughs> there's so many lines. But there's just something about the way he says that. Yeah. And and I didn't even perfectly set the scene up. You just have to watch this scene. But the way yeah. he says that line is so fucking good, I think. That whole, yeah, that whole scene is so good. And he just delivers so many fucking epic lines in that one little it's it's dense right there. It is. My and I'll, I think we'll have a few from that one like few 2 minute segment. Oh yeah. I think uh there's there's one line from that segment that there's a very good chance it's both of your both in one of our number one or twos. Well, I I don't have one of the most iconic lines from there cuz I knew you would have it. Wow. So okay, so all right, let's move on. <laughs> My number 4 is also like a little bit sort of off the beaten path. And it's basically uh, okay. So, quick editor's note: uh, when they were filming the movie, it was basically presented that Ray would be Lazarus's prisoner uh, for like a month or so, and then by the time the movie was put together, it's more like a few days. So it's a bit abrupt, but essentially, right after. Uh, Ray comes to kind of accept her fate. Um, 
Lazarus is like, you know, still like tending to her like cuts basically because fucking Michael Raymond James, douchebag, beat the shit out of her. And he's he's talking about how like it's not so much that he, you know, he's not saying that he's perfect, you know, he's and he's like preaching to her in that way. He's just saying like that he wants to help her. Again, totally fucked up. I'm not saying this is good. But in that, he just says, like, saying like he's basically saying, I'm not perfect. And he says, playing guitar and then blood bucket jukes all your life. Uh, N-word, learn how to sin. And just, like, the way he does it, it's just, like, again, it just establishes so much about his character where you're just like, yeah, this guy, I know exactly, like, what he spent his life doing, like, playing guitar in a blues band. Dude, that's a great quote. That's a really, I really like that one. All right. My number three. Number three comes from after the scene where Samuel comes home. He finds the, the young boy Lincoln in the house with Ray kicks his ass out of the house and he, he runs over to the shed and after RL goes into the house to talk to Ray, Samuel goes into the barn and he goes to talk to, to Lincoln. It's a nice scene. You know, he sort of tells him, makes him feel better about everything. He realizes it's his first time and he gets a little playful with them. And he said, he goes, he goes, you want a cigarette? And, he, and Lincoln goes, no, sir. And he goes, that's usually what you do when you're through. You either smoke or leave her smoking. Ha! Yeah, the la- I love that you uh, you emphasized the laugh there because the yeah. laugh makes the whole fucking It's what laugh. makes it. It's what it makes cuts, it. It just cuts right at his laugh, like the, the next scene. It's incredible. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, so so good. Good. it's so good. It's um, so good. It's so good. It's all right. about the laugh. So my number three is, I guess, sort of the extended version of your number five. When yeah, she's like she's got she's run out of the house with the chain, uh, and he just goes, yeah, I ain't gonna be moved on this, right or wrong. You gonna mind me, like Jesus Christ said, I'm gonna suffer you, I'm gonna suffer you. Get your ass back in my house. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's like powerful and funny, and like it's it's good. It's so good, so good. All right, my number two is when he gets to the bar towards the very end where he brings Ray, he decides to play a show. And when he Mm -hmm. arrives at the bar, the same bar that we saw in one of the opening scenes that was dead, no one in it. It's absolutely packed, absolutely packed. It's like wall to wall pushing through people. And Samuel, he sort of is giving some shit like, holy shit, there's a lot of people. And, he says this line that I just love. He just goes, he's like, I've been drinking in this shithole all my life. Never seen this many people in here. And then the bartender looks at me and goes, shithole? He goes, kiss my ass, N-word. And then Samuel just goes, back at you, motherfucker. <laughs> it's it's, it's so just good. such a good motherfucker from Samuel. Yeah, his totally iconic, good. you know, phrase, of course. And then during his singing and like the subsequent scene, he says motherfucker like eight times. It's, it's all great. There is no better, no one in this world 
says motherfucker better than Samuel. There is no one. So that's I mean, that's just a fact. That's just <laughs> that is a fact. It's a fact. And this is again. This is came out in two thousand seven. So this is literally snakes on a plane time, which is like. Obviously, he's delivered some great motherfuckers, but obviously also Snakes on a Plane was written specifically for him to be able to deliver the greatest motherfucker of all time. Oh, my God. Is that fair to say? 100%. I mean, it has to be. And he delivered. And he delivers, obviously. He delivers every time. My number two is also in the bar, but in the earlier section. Uh, Not not soon after the fine lady Mayella offers him some good pussy. Uh, we, you know, we find out basically that his wife has left him specifically for his brother. So his brother walks in and tries to like make peace. Samuel's obviously not about to make peace. Uh, and then his brother makes the mistake of telling Samuel that he loves him. So he, sm- he smashes his bottle, throws him onto the pool table, and just goes, Cain slew Abel, slew him out of envy. God put his mark on Cain for his sins. Is that what you want, Deke? Huh? Is that what you come here for? I'll do it for you. All you got to say is, again, say you love me. Say you love me, N-word. Smashes the bottle, cuts his hand, rubs like the blood from his hand on his face, and just like walks away like it's no big deal. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. Incredible, such a such a fucking badass scene. Yeah, and the um, way he de- obviously the way he delivers this word that we're not gonna say. That last bit, say you love me, is just goddamn it's so good. It's powerful. It's fucking powerful. I'm very curious what your number one is because I feel like there's two lines around the same time. Wow. And I'm hoping you have the one I don't have. Well, I have what was my favorite line the first time I ever saw this movie, and it did not disappoint on this viewing, which is at around that same point in the movie, RL is about to walk into the house to meet Ray for the first time, and Samuel just looks at him, and he just goes, RL, you watch yourself in there. That girl be on your dick like stank on shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm so glad you picked that one because I thought you would, and I didn't put it in mine so that we could give more Samuel lines. Oh my god, you're amazing! But it it, it, it is just unreal, absolutely incredible. The the delivery, the actual line itself, it is just unfucking real. I cackle when he says it. You cackle, and it is also there's like sneaky good delivery, like. He's basically walking away. He's walking to the shed to go sort of comfort Lincoln. And so like he's walking away and he says it in just like the perfect, like this is what you would say if you like a last sort of comment before you just like casually like turn your back on somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. like he really delivers it perfectly for what the line needs to accomplish. A hundred percent. And now I'm curious as hell what yours is. So mine is right then, right when he walks into the shed to comfort Lincoln. As he said, he's, you know, he tells Lincoln that it's his fault because Lincoln came into the house and there was a girl there that uh, I don't have it here, but he effectively says no one, no one could have resisted her. Young Michael included. I definitely would not have. But anyway, separate issue. So (laughs) he he establishes that it's his first time, right? And then he just goes, 
God, I can't even say it. <laughs> he just goes, she, I remember my first time. It was out behind my uncle's barn with my second cousin. She was two tons if she weighed a pound. <laughs> oh, God. oh, it's so good. God damn. So oh, fucking good. I, I honestly like, can't believe I didn't put that one on there. <laughs> Again, not only is delivery great, and obviously it's like a comedic line, but again, he's delivering it like he's making a joke to comfort this kid that's just been in like an incredibly awkward situation that he has no idea what to do. So like, it's an amazing line, but really he delivers it perfectly as exactly he would and or should for the film. Right. It was actually sort of sweet. Yes. But then also hilarious because Samuel. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. What a goddamn list. I know. What a great list. Top five quotes. Where do we go from here? Well, so you mentioned that you didn't include any quotes from Samuel's songs. Um, And I think maybe now is a time that we should just talk about kind of uh, blues and and the kind of the soundtrack, I guess. Yeah. Dive into it for a moment. Again, like Craig Brewer, before this, really all he had done that's notable i should say is hustle and flow which uh uh so craig is this movie's filmed in tennessee craig is sort of from the memphis area and he and so is jt and so is jt um and basically yeah so his he he loves kind of the music from the area and hustle and flow is really sort of his rap movie and this is like his blues movie and i would say there's maybe two key things for me in terms of the blues in this one. No, maybe three. So one, it's an incredibly honest sort of homage to the blues. Uh, it, it has a lot of like sort of, I don't want to say deep cuts, but like a lot of rich elements. It almost exclusively uses blues for like uh, every scene in the movie. And it's just a list that he's curated as just truly to incorporate it as much as he possibly can. You know, we mentioned the actual music. We mentioned that Samuel is a bluesman in the movie. We mentioned literal clips of Sun House. I mean, it's just packed to the gills with his love of blues. Two for me would be, yes, in every movie, the music is important for setting the tone, but the music here does even more than that. I mean, it sets the tone. It, helps advance the plot it -hmm. describes at times kind of what's actually happening in in sort of an emotional way rather than um, an actual plot point and then at other times they're actually singing about sort of key elements that you're coming to find out through the song which i think leads me to my my last point which is that we mentioned what samuel jackson did to prepare but yeah he sings four songs in this movie they all appear yeah they all appear on the soundtrack um and it cannot be overstated how how good he is compared to what you think he should be and they have you know they're really using his songs in the movie he's again he's singing like critical pieces of information that you need to be paying attention to so they're drawing as much attention to these as he possibly can and he he fucking nails it he absolutely kills it it's so so impressive that it's actually Samuel performing. And I mean, I was blown away 
by the fact that he was able to really do this. Like it's him singing, it's him playing guitar. It's unbelievable. It's the man is just such a talent that I mean, nothing honestly ceases to amaze me that he's able to do because he's such a legend. But this just took everything to another level. Truly. Yeah. And and, uh, so we mentioned a few times, but there is a soundtrack to this movie, as you would probably expect. And the soundtrack, we won't go through everything because we really want to talk about the movie, but uh, it, it, it was pretty well received. I would say sort of six or seven out of 10, if you had to give it a rating at the time, similar Mm -hmm. to kind of the movie, uh, listening to it now, uh, well, one, like all the songs from the movie are in it. So obviously you have that sort of soundtrack thing where you're like, Oh yeah, this is when that's happening or this is when that's happening. But listening to it, you know, without the movie, it kind of plays like, well, it sort of plays like a curated like playlist on Spotify of just like a cross section of random points of blues. So on that level, I think it's interesting to listen to. Um, but all of Samuel's stuff on there, so you should listen to those. If I had to call out a few, uh, When the Lights Go Out by Black Keys, which is like, it's not technically the opening song, but it's like the opening for when you actually see something happen. Absolute fucking banger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lord Have Mercy on Me, Outrageous Cherry, Losing Kind, John Doe is great. And then... Alice May, Samuel Jackson song. They're, these are all fun songs that even if you're not like super into the blues, I would listen to all these and I think you would like them. Also special shout to Stack Oli. Yeah, classic. So that, many motherfuckers. So oh many my motherfuckers. God. That there. one just makes me go nuts when he plays that in the film. Um, yeah, I guess while we're here also, we should mention um, there is a song on the soundtrack by R.L. Burnside, who is another blues legend, but uh basically the movie is actually dedicated to him and he died i mean he was older but he died at at the time of filming of this movie um so he's important they dedicated the film to him samuel kind of based his look uh in the movie off of him somewhat so you know rest in peace big shout out and obviously sorry you mentioned also that one of the characters is named rl the preacher Mm -hmm. and Fun fact about the music, the electric guitar that Laz plays is a Gibson ES-335 that for is all you musicians out there. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I'm like, I just want that thing. I want. The, I just want to hang that on my wall. And it fits him so well. Like you fits believe that, that, so would be well. his guitar, that would be his guitar. That's the only guitar that I could see him playing. Yes. And purple's my favorite color. So fantastic. Swiggy. Mine's, mine's green, but purple's probably my number two. Okay. Well, green and purple go well together. I mean, that's some Hulk some Hulk shit right there. Wow. Wow. Would you say it's David Banner shit? <laughs> you walked right into that. Oh, my right God. This guy's David Banner love- obsession is on another I- level. I love, I love David. Sir David, would would you come onto this? Would you come onto the podcast, please? It'll make my dreams come true, dude. But seriously, Yao Ming with the goat, two chains. What a <laughs> fucking track! Are you kidding? Oh, amazing! So goddamn good. Amazing. So goddamn good. Um. Oh man. Uh. Okay. So let's see. We've we've 
talked about we've Quite talked about the blues we talked about the blues aspect we've talked about the exploitation aspect we've talked about the title i think maybe uh yeah maybe this is the last thing we need to go to we've said it a few times but should we do you want to just sort of explain the the maybe the black snake if i can go so far that's that's behind both of our main characters and sort of the redemption aspect of the movie sure are you saying essentially yeah so i think i know what you're getting at but it's you know that pretty much what both of their demons are and how they overcome it yeah 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 so with ray she has obviously as we've touched on a few different times this we'll call it like a sort of a sex addiction if you will but again it it stems from a lot of stems from mental issues that come from abuse as a child and when she was younger and over the course of the film through you know samuel keeping her at his place her sort of seeing a different side of life through samuel and sort of some of the conversations they have, the conversations she has with RL, she starts to see that this, that she is worth something and that there's no reason to hate herself for what was done to her. And there's no reason for her to self-sabotage her life because of everything that's happened. And I'd say on her end, things start to wrap up where when Samuel does take the chain off, she decides to stay with him. And he, the next morning, drives her to town to get some things from the store. And I think like her first step in getting better is she confronts her mother about the abuse. And it's clearly, it's been a long time thing between them where her mother always acted, you know, sort of turned a blind eye to it and never admitted that she knew what was going on, even though it was very clear she did in Ray's eyes. And Ray just straight up confronts her about it. Instead of always towing around it, she goes head on. Her mom, unfortunately, still denies it and, and sort of goes nuts on Ray and for a second, Ray almost, I feel like, almost regresses and gets a little scared of her mom for a sec. But luckily, Samuel is there to get her out of the situation. And I, and I feel like that's her first step in, real, in, in sort of taking control of her life and standing up for herself. And it goes even further than in being with Samuel, going out to the bar that night where he, on his end, who's fighting his own demons, trying to get over this situation with his ex-wife, his his younger brother, and he just says, fuck it as well, decides, what am I doing moping around, not 
not being a normal person anymore. Let me get out there, do the thing I love. Let me play the blues. He plays the blues. It's cathartic for him. She she's vibing to the music, just getting lost in the music. I think that was. I think it's a healing moment for her. And it's almost like after that night, they both start their new path. Because when they wake up in the morning, she's messing with the guitar, clearly in awe sort of of what had happened last night. And Samuel again encourages her in a, in a very like fatherly way. Essentially, you know, you, you can do, you can do anything that you put your mind to because she's, she's saying, Oh, I can't, I can't, you know, sing or, do this and she sings this really really beautiful um little rendition of like i'm gonna let it shine this little light of mine i'm gonna let it shine and she she sings that while samuel plucks on the on the acoustic guitar in the room it's a beautiful little scene that that obviously leads to some intensity because ronnie comes in behind pistol whips lazarus in the head and that that's a pretty intense scene. But in the end, I think that the experience that Lazarus has with Ray makes him realize that he can't just focus on what's gone wrong in his life, mope around and not do and, you know, be a recluse forever. I think it encourages him to take a step forward in his life. And I think for Ray, she's able to finally, finally face what happened in getting abused by her father when she was younger and realize, you know, it's okay that I'm fucked up. It doesn't mean that I need to just throw my life away, hate myself and, not take care of myself because I'm, I'm worthy of love and my, my life has, you know, my life does have a purpose and I, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful thing that they're able to sort of heal each other in a way. And then of course, in the very end, the fact that Samuel and what he did do with Ray and then sort of how he ends up speaking to Ronnie is what in turn helps their relationship as they're able to talk through things and talk about both their traumas. Cause Ronnie also has had a lot of trauma and I think that's what, it, that's what's able to make that relationship work out. And then Samuel, of course, at the end, it looks like he might be starting a new relationship with the pharmacist that there's been this thread throughout the film, but Mike, do you have, do you have any other thoughts on this? I, I that was pretty um, long winded of me. No, no, no. I actually, I think you nailed it. To be honest, it's it's not easy, and I think you did a good job of kind of explaining everything there. But there, maybe just a few points. So, yeah. So Ray obviously has this history of sexual abuse, which is totally fucked up. Uh, Christina Ricci sort of said that she, you know, researched anxiety and PTSD to try to like prepare for this role. I, I mentioned it before, but I, and I'm not, I'm not a doctor, shockingly. 
But if you kind of go into it, it does seem like if she has any sort of one thing, maybe it's like borderline personality disorder. But regardless, it's not critical to understand. It's just, you know, trying to capture her sort of mental health problems that she's having. Um, You talked about the scene in the bar, which is like very key overall. And yeah, I think you nailed it. If anything, I just add that like one thing that, that Lazarus has done, well, has or hasn't done basically is he's he's really the only person in her life that isn't trying to take something from her besides Ronnie the entire entire life really but obviously over the course of the movie and compared to the, like the first party scene where she gets fucked up and raped with her quote-unquote friends mm-hmm. and then at the end where she's sort of released back into the world if you want to say she you know is with all these people, no one tries to do anything to her. She just is able to kind of be herself, have fun, be free and not like you could like literally see the weight lifting off of her shoulders, like during that scene. And, and yeah, for Lazarus, I think you pretty much said it, but it's, you know, when he was with his wife, he, he gave everything, he gave up his whole life and and that didn't work out. You know, he's left her. She, had an abortion that he didn't really know about until after and obviously giving up himself on some level, you know, caused her to fall out of love with him. So he's going back to kind of how he fonder times, if you want to say that. And obviously there's this cathartic element of playing blues music, which is deeply emotional that kind of helps him get over the whole situation. And between the two of them, even though it maybe describing it is a little bit perverse. Uh, it's, it's much sweeter when you're actually watching it, but when, uh, so Lazarus essentially, I guess you could say gives Ray away in marriage to Ronnie in the same way that a regular father kind of would. And he, uh, basically they have this like gold chain that kind of keeps, uh, Ronnie and, and Ray together as like sort of a wedding thing instead of just rings. And it's, yeah, it, it's admittedly, it doesn't sound great when you're saying it, but like she, clearly she's, um, the chain has come to mean sort of a, like a stability, like something sturdy in her life that she can hold on to um, as a positive experience overall um, when she has these, I guess you'd say like attacks or, or something um, that Ronnie has as well. And the whole thing um, helps guide them through into their life together. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, we've said a lot of other like things, both good and bad, let's say about the movie, but overall this is what the movie is, is really about. And it's, 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 there's so much going on. It's, it's difficult even to talk about, never mind to act direct, to tell the story, but it really does a beautiful job of, conveying that message amidst this as we've said already not exactly realistic chaotic situation totally and i i think that you know at the end of the day the film it really gives you a sense of like empowerment at the end on both characters ends pretty much just saying like be yourself face your demons, everything will end up working out. And I really feel like, especially like female empowerment by the end with, with Ray's character, she really takes a hold of her life and 
through all the shitty things that have happened to her, she walks out on the other side. And it's a, it's, it's a really, uh, it, it really, honestly, it's a, it's a touching movie for how much there are, there are laughs. There is a lot of crazy shit that happens in it. There's a lot of music involved, but, but it's, it's a touching film by the end. For sure. And I guess the last thing I'd say that uh, I'll mention it here, because I think it's important when you're discussing the movie, but but not necessarily key to the actual analysis. There is, and, and Craig has said it, that this movie does have a lot of religious exploration to it, but a lot of that was cut out um, in terms of like when it was conceived that she would be kind of captive for like a month. Laz spent a lot of time like reading the Bible to her. So that was kind of cut out, but he is still sort of inspired by the Bible. He's very much like trying to drive this demon out of her. Uh, he, he kidnaps her essentially in the name of religion, which is fucked up. But at the same time, RL as kind of a religious figure who has this whole scene where um, you know, he talks about how to him, religion is not so much about like heaven and hell. It's just about being a better person. Um, and that becomes important as he kind of counsels the people in the movie. So it's, there's a lot of complication and, and you could read into the various things about the religion, religious aspect of it. But at the end of the day, it's more, it, it's more of a personal interpretation that I think leaves you with questions rather than central to your understanding or enjoyment of the film is is that fair definitely definitely you want to uh you want to jump into our top five moments let's do it let's do it top five moments all right you want to go first this time yeah you go first this time so my number five we already did which is exactly what you said the title sequence uh where she's walking in blocking the tractor which i'm deeming ends at her amazing quote amazing Amazing. While she's walking into town. Absolutely incredible. Amazing. So that's number five. My number five, we actually I actually glazed over very recently. It is the part where Lazarus wakes up and he finds Ray messing with the acoustic guitar. And oh yeah. They end up sort of he plays guitar. She sings and they do this, you know, I'm going to let it shine. I thought it was just a beautiful moment. I was just sort of sitting there. The music took me away and was a spe- was a special, special part of the film for me. I'm actually kind of disappointed that it didn't make it to my top five. It's just so touching and just feels so like genuine and heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it's a great scene. It feels like you're not watching a movie for a moment. It feels like really? you're just watching a moment between two people. And not in the same way, obviously, as Samuel, but she's so good in the way that she sings those lines as well. Yes. Not like, oh, she's an amazing singer, but like it sounds like her, the character, is doing it. Absolutely. it's You feel every piece of it with her because of... It's, it's like... Yeah, I can't even describe it, but the, what you just said is perfect. Like, it is like her character is singing it, and there's that extra emotional weight to such a simple song because of that. In in a lot of ways, actually, it's funny because, like, my number five, 
is a scene that she nails because of like the don't give a fuck aspect of Ray. And your number five is a scene that she nails because of like the underlying sweetness of her actual character. Once you strip away all this pain and she absolutely nails both of those. And that just speaks to, I think totally unintentionally, obviously, but speaks to, you know, what she's able to accomplish in this role. Mm -hmm. And, and speaks to Christina Ricci's acting abilities. Legend. I mean, again, we know how much Mike loves her. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So my number four is, I also already spoke about this, but really it's the whole scene with uh, the brother Deke when he comes into the bar and he like, the whole, the dialogue there is great. You know, where he's, he says like, Oh, I'll take a bullet for you. And then he's like, Oh, you still got that 22 behind the bar. Like let's test it out, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he just like rampages on him, marks him with his blood and then just like walks away. And it's just like, he's just not fucking around. (laughs) It's it's it's, it's so good. Such a good fucking scene. Yeah. All right, my number four is a very, very brief moment, but I couldn't. Inc- I personally did not feel like I could include it in my quotes because part of it is a physical action that Samuel takes. So I saved it for here. But it is when, <laughs> after everything has happened with JT, where where he runs, you know, runs in, pistol whips Samuel. They have a whole scuffle and then Ronnie and Ray are sort of like on the floor, I think like hugging, whatever. And Samuel just walks over, takes a phone like out of a drawer, (laughs) plugs it into the wall. I lost my mind. It's out of like the washing machine. Yes, yes. (laughs) He literally plugs his like phone into the wall. It was just the most amazingly hilarious little thing. But then he just gets on the other end and he's like, he's like, hey, it's me. I need you to get over here. And then in the most Samuel, he goes, yeah, right now. And then he just hangs up. <laughs> it is incredible. It is so good. Oh, I just love that. I love that so much. It's like oh my, my favorite God, like little so moment. I'm so glad. That you, yeah. It's also funny because like she looks for the phone earlier, like while she's <laughs> yes. and she like, it's actually like low-key a good hiding spot. It's so good. Um, all right. So my number three, we've talked about it a lot. It's like, it's really like the pinnacle of the film, but the whole night uh, where they go to the bar, you get two full songs by Samuel. He's like, again, he's like being freed of these feelings that he's feeling. She's on the dance floor feeling the same thing. Everyone's having a great time. Samuel's performance is great. The whole scene is just, it's, um, I, I would say if you were like thinking about how you were going to write the movie, it's a little bit of an unlikely scene to be kind of like the the most important scene in the film, but the way that it plays out is totally natural and it just, yeah, it delivers a lot in a short amount of time. I totally agree. And that scene, or at least parts of it, are a little bit further down my my top five. Oh, word okay so um, number three my number three though is the whole scene where lazarus whips out the guitar and sings sings black snake moan for her 
Um, but it, but, but starting at the point where they're taking shots and <clears throat> I'm, I'm a little bit cheating cause it's a long scene, but it is no, all one it. long scene. And when they take shots and they take the initial shots and they both win so much. And then of course, Samuel just being a legend goes, want another one? And then of course, Ray also being a legend, she goes, sure. We drinking buddies now. And it's just such a great scene. It's when he takes off the chain. It's when Ray decides to stay. He sings this song, Black Snake Moan. It's just, it feels like for this movie, such an iconic piece of the film. Him playing the song while there's this storm. She's getting these visions, sort of going back to her father abusing her. And he just, again, he just slays it singing this song. It's such a great scene. Yeah, 100%. And I'll, I'll mention one more thing about the song before this is all over. Um, but we'll get to it. My my number two is, uh, yeah, a scene that we've danced around a bit. But really the whole scene where she, you know, wakes up, discovers that she's tied, uh, chained up, uh, tries to run out of the house. She gets like, you know, she reaches the end of her chain and it like yanks her back. He... Uh, Meanwhile, is in the house, basically talking to the radiator, saying, like, we will not be moved. And the radiator is kind of like a symbol of sort of his wholesome life, if you want to say. And then, yeah, he just, like, literally reels, like, reels her in uh, through, like, the wall. Uh, yeah, through, like, the doorway. We've already said some of the quotes that he has. This is after she, like, spits in his face. And then <laughs> she, like, gives up because he's reeled her, like, all the way to the door. And he just goes... You hungry? <laughs> Wait, Mike, you're gonna lose it. That is my exact number two. Oh my god! And you even the last part of me writing up about it just says, "You hungry?" <laughs> it, the whole scene is just great. And then, again, there's so much going on. Like it's funny, but it's key to the plot, and like they're both great in it. It's so good, so good. And just the the, the image of him like standing in the house, like literally reeling her in by the chain. <laughs> It's just so crazy. <laughs> oh, absolutely fantastic scene. One of the best. Both of our number twos. And what's your number one, my friend? Uh, all right. So my number one is uh, the scene where they're both getting fucked up. Uh, so this is in the beginning of the movie. They haven't met each other yet. Ah. Uh, Basically, there's kind of like it's it's almost like four scenes, like two for each of them overlapped, if that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. uh, so Samuel's at his house. His wife just left him. He's getting drunk. Same time, and he's getting like silly drunk, like he's falling around his house. Same time, she's at the party. Uh, this is also something that's like very southern, which is like interesting that it's put in there because everyone at the party is just popping all kinds of pills and she literally just walks up to the guy giving out pills and just goes how many to get me fucked up and then she like has this quick um scene where she like pounds pills and like falls backwards off the like a porch and then it goes back to samuel again and he's now uh breaking out his guitar to play uh not a song that he's he's written but is a song that he performs and performs on the soundtrack as well. Just like a bird without a feather. 
So he does that for like 30 seconds. Then he plays out the rest of that song for a minute. And during that minute, you flash back to the party with Ray. Now it's a smaller group and she's like fucked up beyond repair and gets raped. And just like the the whole like scene of them being lonely, both of them like using substances to try to like numb their pain and, and both of them spiraling downwards until like a few minutes later is when they actually meet each other. Dude, such that, that almost was in my top five. That is such a good scene. It's just so well done. All of the way, like the way it interacts with each other, like how long they spend on each scene and how much Mm -hmm. overlap they have. Like it's, just so well done yeah and the way that it like represents her on the pills and everything it's just so good yeah it's incredible oh that is a fantastic number one my number one is essentially your number three it's it's that bar scene and i'd say i took it a bit more specific but overall it's the entire scene that i love but specifically my absolute favorite few minutes of the film is when he's playing the song stackily uh, the final song that we see him play in the bar. I just, so many of the lines in it, cause it's sort of, you know, he's playing the blues. It's sort of like spoken word is like the way he's singing in this one, which mm-hmm. obviously is sometimes a blues thing, but some of the lines are just outrageous and just made me like, I was almost like dancing in my living room, just it's also just going nuts when he would drop some of these lines and then everyone would like cheer and like be dancing and it's just ultimate Samuel badassery. I I love shows myself, so just seeing the whole place and they're going nuts, it was just giving me all of all of the best feels. And it just also, as you had mentioned, happens to be arguably the most important scene of the movie. So it just such a great scene. I love it. Yeah, and oh, well, the only thing I was going to say about. I guess I have two more things to say in total. So the first is about the the whole Black Snake Moan. I I was getting a bit into like the differences between the the BLJ, the Blind Lemon Jefferson version, and Samuel's version. So after I watched the movie, uh, I was just watching like that, like a cut of that on YouTube, and I thought about it. I just wanted to include this here because I think it, it kind of summarizes sort of how I feel and sort of how this movie is interpreted, but literally like the YouTube video that I watched of just Samuel Jackson in that scene, I just happened to scroll down and these are the top two comments of the, like of people on YouTube with obviously like a million upvotes each. Mm -hmm. First one is someone going, one of the most underrated, underappreciated, and misunderstood films in the history of cinema, which maybe is a bit hyperbolic, but anyway. Wow. And this, the second one is half-naked, chained-up Christina Ricci in all the trailers and promotional material, Justin Timberlake in a dramatic acting role, Samuel L. Jackson playing yet another crazy black guy. This movie ended up being about 5,000 times better than the sum of its parts. And I feel like there's a tr- grain of truth in all of that, but that's like truly how I feel about it. Is that like y- you have no idea what to expect? I don't think anybody does. But then when you do, I really find it hard to believe that people that gave this movie a fair shake didn't like it or ended up rating it like a six out of ten. I don't think you could do that. 
Agreed. It's, it is, it is, it truly is a gem. It just, through and through is a good, good film. It is a unique film. I can't think of one other movie like it. Can you? No. And I'm so glad that we've given it, you know, just to let people know, you know, for this, this podcast, we'll be doing a lot of like, all the movies of this actor, all the movies of this director, you know, a few highlights from here, sequels, trilogies, blah, blah, blah. This movie, I'm so glad that we're letting it have its own space because there's really nothing that you can compare it to and it deserves your attention. I couldn't agree more. It almost honestly doing this one makes me in the future, if we ever do do just single movies for a podcast. It makes me just want to do ones that are underrated and are underappreciated because hopefully if you guys are out there listening, we'll turn on some new people to some films that don't get the love they deserve. And this is at the top of that list. For sure. Uh, the last thing I'll say, and, and I've left it for the end is, is a quote that, that Ray gives in the movie. This is the very end where, Ronnie is back. RL is has been called by Samuel Jackson after getting the phone from the washing machine. And he's like counseling them and trying to like talk them through their relationship. And she says, I think I think we're fucked up. I know I am, but that don't mean what I feel ain't real, that I can't love somebody, and I know what I've done is real, real bad, but and then she kind of trails off and says, So if you want to quit on me, I understand, but please don't. And in watching this film now, I almost feel like in this like scene, she's really sort of talking to the audience. Like she's basically saying like, I get that this story is like super fucked up and crazy, but like, if you look hard enough, you should care about me as a character. And I don't necessarily think it was written that way, but like all these years later with all the things that have been said about the film and like the way the world has gone towards justifiably bringing more attention to the issues that this movie talks about, I just felt like this was like, yeah, it's it's almost a nod to the audience about like why you should give a shit. Dude, I love, I love that interpretation. And I think whether or not that was intended that's one of the things we can take from it today and it's such an awesome just extra layer to the film for sure i think that might be it i think i think that's it i think we've done it well look black snake moan black schwart moan whatever you want to call it like snake schwart even yeah schwart snake moan look this movie is awesome as we have said a few times throughout this severely underrated so if you haven't seen it watch it if you have seen it that's probably why you're listening to this podcast so thanks for listening if you want to reach us we're at top fives and deep dives at gmail.com or we're on Instagram at Top Fives and Deep Dives. We'll see you guys next time. Peace out. Thanks, guys. See you next time.